I'm here to bring you another edition of the Weekend Warm-Up Podcast. Of course, that's BFW's weekly show where we hit on all the latest and greatest news of the week. As always, when you're covering Bayern Munich and Germany, there is a lot to talk about. Of course, Bayern is on break, but we still will hit on them a bit. And we've got Germany heading into the World Cup, coming off of a very uneven showing against uh, Oman, and that was was not convincing if you were looking for a great performance from Germany, but we will touch on that. But uh, how are you guys doing? How are you feeling heading into the World Cup? Because I know I am super excited about what's going on. I can't wait for this tournament to start because, in my opinion, despite everything going on around this World Cup, and there is a lot of controversy, including the timing of it, which is really, I think, terrible. But when it comes down to it, we start thinking about games and matchups and players that we want to watch, it still is exciting to me. I can get past all of that. And yes, I know all of the controversy with Qatar. It's it's incredible, everything from rumors about how they got the opportunity to host a World Cup to everything that is going on with social issues. There is a lot to not like about the situation, but I'm going to focus on the games and the competition because that's what I'm most interested in. That's why I'm going to watch. Uh, you could debate the other stuff for days, and, and believe me, people are doing that. But uh, when it comes down to it, you have to play the games, and there are going to be a lot of people watching them, and I will be one of them. And I'm sure many of you will be in the same boat I am looking at these games, looking to see which ones are going to be great, checking out the biggest matchups, seeing which players will be facing off against one one another, and also looking for those 17 Bayern Munich players that are going to be involved in the competition. So let's get straight to it. We'll hit back on our normal format with the five things we learned this week. And while I'm not going to drone on too much about this because I did the post-game show for the Germany-Oman match, I have to say the first thing that I learned this week is that Hansi Flick might be playing a little poker with his uh, – lineups and his team at this point because I don't think he wanted to show a lot against Oman and I know that was the final friendly the final warm-up before the World Cup but I think Flick had a plan had an agenda and I think he didn't want to reveal too much about what he wants to do I think it was obvious with some of the players that he held out of course he had players like Thomas Muller and Antonio Rudiger who were nursing injuries and maybe could have played if it was a World Cup final, but considering it was a precursor to the World Cup, there was no need to break them out. You also had some players only taking half a shift who were probably going to be full-game players, uh, such as Yashua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka, and you didn't have groups within the starting 11 that were familiar playing with each other. You didn't have a defense that really had probably logged any minutes together ever. Uh, you had a midfield that was familiar, but midfield was far from the biggest problem. You had an attack that featured a 17-year-old uh, and, and not a lot else in terms of cohesion because they looked like they had not played together, which, of course, they had not. So I didn't want to get too worked up when I did the post-game show about Oman and that match because I really did think that Flick didn't want to reveal a lot, that he didn't want to show his cards just yet. And... I, Believe me, when watching that, it was disappointing because you would think that Germany's defenders, no matter who they were, where they ranked in the on the depth chart, they would be able to come out and play a little bit more steady than what they showed against Oman. And, and I was disappointed in that because if some of those players are called upon 
to fill in a role if there are if there is an injury or another type of issue to hold someone out. I'm not sure I have a whole hell of a lot of confidence in some of those players. Uh, when it comes to the attack, I'll be honest, I didn't expect a lot out of, out of Yusuf Makoku. I mean, he is 17. He's got a lot of learning to do. Uh, he has a ton of potential. But right now, Flick, I'm sure, is viewing him as a, a developmental player who he wanted to get some experience. And if Timo Werner was around and he was healthy, we probably wouldn't see Makoko at this point. Uh, but what I did think Flick learned about his attack is that he's going to have to rely on those Bayern Munich boys to lead it. And whether that means uh, he's rolling with a straight four of Muller, Sané, Gnabry, and Musiala, or he's going to mix in Nicholas Fulkrug as a striker and use one of them as a super sub, I don't know. We don't even know at this point if Muller's going to be fully healthy. But what we do know is that whatever attack he rolls out against Japan in game one is going to be a hell of a lot better than what he rolled out against Oman in that warm-up match. So I think that when it comes to Flick and when it comes to what he's got with this roster, he's never one to really show his cards. He's never one to really give other teams an opportunity to scout him out figure out what he's going to do and what his team is going to look like. He's always been like that going back to his time at Bayern. He does not like to give his opponents any edge. So when factoring all of that in as kind of iffy as I was about everything that I saw, I was okay knowing that Flick is in control of this. And if it was Yogi Love toward the end of his his tenure with Germany, I don't know if I would feel as confident heading into the World Cup as I did. I am a little wary that some of these players, like I said, could be called upon and that they might not be able to perform up to the level that they need to. Uh, I need to see a little more out of a player like Kai Havertz. Right now, I'm not sure if he's in the the top four, if he's in the top seven or even top eight players for the attack. We know that that Flick and Mario Götze have a history. We know that Flick wants to give Götze a bigger role based on the most recent reports. Will he jump over Havertz? Uh, has Fulkrug, given the fact that he actually was one of the only attackers that looked like he had an idea of what he was doing under Flick, is he going to jump past Havertz? Now, Havertz is very interesting for a number of reasons. He's got size in terms of his height. He's got speed. He's got skill. He definitely has ability. He has not always performed consistently enough to warrant as much hype as he has gotten. And I am someone who is a fan of Kai Havertz. I like his game. I think he still has great potential to do great things. He's also proven that he can perform on the biggest stage. I mean, he did score a Champions League winning goal. But Kai Havertz is going to have to show that he can do it consistently. And can he do it more consistently than Serge Gnabry or Leroy Sané or Jamal Musiala or Thomas Muller? We don't know that at this point. If you put a gun to my head, I would say, no, he can't. So where Havertz fits into the mix, how Flick uses Goetzo, what Flick decides to do with full Krug at this point, it all remains to be seen. But one thing is certain, he's not going to give any indication because when he releases that lineup for Japan, it's pretty much going to surprise everyone. And as much as all of the journalists in Germany are going to try and sort it out and they're going to try and figure it out, and you're going to have pundits making their predictions on what Flick's going to do, he's going to sit back like Lardass Hogan at that pie-eating contest and just watch all the chaos with a big smirk on his face because he's going to be the only one that knows what's going on. 
And no, I'm not calling flick fat by any means, but I will never forget that scene and stand by me and whoever the actor was, how he got that look on his face when the entire crowd was puking all over each other. It was the best S eating grin I think I've ever seen. And it set the standard by which we should all live when it comes to S eating grins. So uh, made me really think about that. No, flick is not fat. Flick is definitely though looking for one of those moments to break out that kind of smile. So I'm not super worried about Germany and where they're at. I trust in flick until he proves to me that I shouldn't trust in him. And to be honest, his entire tenure at Bayern Munich, even though it was brief, uh, he never really gave many reasons for people to doubt him. Did I always agree with what he did? No, but he always got the results that you needed. And to be honest, if he would have had a healthy squad against PSG in his last year, I think they probably would have won the world, uh, the, the champions league that year as well. It's, I don't know. It's just one of those things where it was very unfortunate, you know, and it's, it's one of the common tropes in sports The set, you know, the year after you win a major title, you have in more injuries, you have more players worn down because of the wear and tear they put on the year before. And I do think that was part of the reason why Bayern Munich did not have a successful of a 21, uh, 22, or was it 21, 2020, 2021 season, uh, as they did in winning the sextuple in 2020. So uh, I trust in Flick. We'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm not worried about anything, even after that very unconvincing performance against Oman. Second thing we learned this week is that I'm really excited. It's the freaking World Cup. So <laughs> I am I am extremely happy to be uh, able to, one, talk about it, two, cover it for BFW and SBN, and then also just to be able to watch the games. So right now I learned I'm so excited. I want to take a quick run through the groups and give you my predictions on the winner. And I'm not going to drone on for each of these groups. I'm going to pick the two teams that I think are going to move on and we will play it by ear from there. Uh, Group A, of course, features Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and Netherlands. This one to me, kind of easy. I'm going to go with the Netherlands and Senegal. Uh, I'd be feeling a whole lot better about that Senegal pick if Sadio Mane was not injured. But of course, uh, it's very doubtful, at least at this point, that he's going to play. And if he does, to me, it's a huge risk. But uh, I still think those are the two best teams. I'll say Netherlands wins the group, Senegal finishes second and moves on. Group B, very interesting for a lot of reasons. England, Iran, the United States and Wales. Okay, we'll get it out of the way. I think England will win the group. But the second place team, and this is very interesting to me because Wales, I think, is probably the more steady team. Uh, The United States probably has, I hate saying this, but a little more potential than Wales. But can the United States pull it together and, and be able to get that second place finish? I'm not convinced at this point, but I'm also looking at the Wales roster and I'm not sure how they're going to do it. What kind of Gareth Bale are you going to get? Are you going to get the player who's dynamic and almost unstoppable and who is just has a, an absolute knack of raising his game on the biggest stages? Are you going to get that guy who's an absolute problem for any team on, on earth to handle? I don't know. The United States, in many ways, this is a huge, huge World Cup for them because This group of players came up through this new wave of American soccer that started with the U.S. Development Academy, and it really 
was designed and it's been followed up by MLS next to get the best players, start grouping them, uh, not just together, but competing against each other in leagues uh, at a very young age. And I think this DA generation that we're seeing, even though the DA is not around anymore, is either going to tell us that the United States was headed down the right path, that they were going to actually put something together that was not going to be quite as effective as what the Europeans do, but maybe the best we could offer in the United States, or it was a sham that didn't even really identify and develop the best players for this specific World Cup. It's a tough call. I, I was really leaning toward Wales most of the week, but I'm going to say the United States is going to win and they're going to advance. Um, I would not be shocked if it's Wales. Uh, and to be honest, Iran is no pushover either. So um, we'll see what happens, but I'm going to go with the U S and that way I won't get chased uh, down the street by any of my American brothers here. Uh, group C Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. Another fascinating group. I think Argentina wins. Oh, man, second place, Mexico and Poland. Robert Lewandowski, his last chance for greatness in a World Cup. Will Mexico find a way to be able to stop him? I don't know that the Poland team is quite deep enough. The Mexican team has its own set of problems. But in this case, I'm going to pick Mexico to finish second. Robert Lewandowski will be shut out, unfortunately. I would love to see Poland move along, you know, for whatever it's worth. Even though he moved to FC Barcelona, I still would like to see Lewandowski achieve things that, that maybe he hasn't before in his career. It would be a great accomplishment just to get out of this group for Poland, but I'm going to go with Argentina and Mexico. Group D, France, Australia, Denmark, and Tunisia. Just an absolute killer of a group. I'm going to go with France and Denmark to advance out. I think Denmark uh, has a slight nod over Australia. France is a juggernaut, even though they're a little bit banged up. I think that they are still probably the odds-on favorite to win the entire World Cup, but it won't be easy. They will uh, have some tough games in the group, I think, but we will have to see how this French team responds. Do they feel the pressure of being the reigning champions? Are they going to be able to uh, compensate for some of the losses and personnel that they have in terms of injuries? Uh, They still have just so much talent, including, what, four Bayern Munich players. So they're pretty much well set up to, to at least advance past this group stage. Group E, Germany's group. Germany, of course, will be grouped with Spain, Costa Rica, and Japan. To me... This is probably the second hardest group in the competition after our next group, which I think Group F is a bit of a monster too. But Spain, Costa Rica, Germany, Japan, absolutely no pushovers in the group. Costa Rica is a, is going to bring it. They are not going to be easy for anyone. Japan is a very disciplined and good team. Uh, in the end, it's tough to go against Germany and Spain. I'm going to say Germany is going to win it. Spain will finish in second. It would not shock me, however, if any of these four teams moved on. I do respect them, all four of them, a lot. Uh, Japan is really, to me, a dark horse here. I think that they could uh, knock off either Germany or Spain. I don't think they're getting a whole hell of a lot of respect, but I do think they have that capability. Uh, In the end, though, Spain and Germany should have enough power to move on. Group F, Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. Oh, man, absolute killer. (laughs) I mean, right away... Even though Morocco is is not a terrible team, I just think they could be overwhelmed by the competition here. Canada is an absolute nation on the rise. Uh, they, 
I mean, aside of Alfonso Davies, they have some serious talent on that team. Uh, Belgium, of course, is stacked, loaded, whatever you want to say. They they are just you know incredible. Croatia, steady as ever, a lot of good talent. They also play a very disciplined style. Uh, I'm going to go with Belgium and Croatia. I know that's going to be not a very popular pick because I do think Canada, in my mind, uh, is a team that definitely could move on and, and really probably might move on. Um, you know, I, I don't feel super confident about excluding them, but I'm going to go with Belgium and Croatia, though it really wouldn't shock me if Canada sneaks in. Group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, and Cameroon. Another tough group. Uh, no games will be easy. Brazil, I'm very interested in because I don't think that as a unit, this squad has really shown what they're capable of in recent years. Um, to me, Brazil and Switzerland are the two best teams in this group. I think it's safe to say those two will move on, though Cameroon and Serbia are both very strong. It's another tough group. Uh, I, I look at this World Cup and I just see tough group after tough group and, and nothing will be easy. So uh, Switzerland, I think, is a little bit underrated. I think they have a lot of good potential. And I wouldn't even be shocked if they finished atop the group and knocked off Brazil. But for now, I'll stick with Brazil being top, Switzerland being second. Finally, Group H. Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and Korea. My guy, Teddy-san, will be disappointed if I don't pick Korea. I think Korea, you know, obviously we saw what they did to Germany in 2018. They're not going to surprise anybody this time, but I think they're a very solid team. Uruguay and Portugal, of course, are uh, perennial contenders or whenever uh, whenever there's a major competition. Uh, Ghana is is no uh walkover they're no pushover either uh that's the united states so uh another tough group but in this one again i'll probably go chalk and say portugal and uruguay though korea and ghana could both really i mean again it won't shock me i mean portugal should be the best team in this group but that's assuming that cristiano ronaldo is focused on what he needs to do and that the rest of his teammates actually don't kill him before this competition is over. So those are my picks to get through. Uh, we'll see how they work out. They'll probably all blow up uh, and, and I'll probably be out some money, but that's what we'll do this time. And then we'll reassess things uh, for the next round of the competition and I'll make some more picks and hopefully uh, they'll be good. <laughs> the third thing that we learned this week is that Paul Vonner might be Bayern Munich's Anakin Skywalker. And the reason why I'm saying that is that, I think Paul Vonner is extremely talented. I think this kid has a terrific future ahead of him. I think he's incredibly impatient right now and is getting really, really antsy and, and maybe looking toward the dark side for a transfer. He certainly has already made his uh, his bones right now by attending the Austrian national team camp, which we hit on last week. It's a pretty big move for Vonner because the kid in a lot of nations, even though he's so young, would be getting more looks from national teams just because of his talent. In Germany, though, they're loaded. I mean, they are stacked everywhere. So how do you fit in a kid like Paul Vonner? It's tough. Where do you get – whose spot would he take on this World Cup roster? Now, I know a lot of you would have some ideas about that. But realistically, who was Hansi Flick going to, to replace with Paul Vonner? It's just not doable right now. And with Austria being out of the World Cup, it is a great opportunity for, for Paul Vonner to go and do this exploratory exercise and figure out if maybe he should take advantage of his mother's Austrian heritage and, and make himself an international for Austria. Now, the 
Gaif Bay is not really thrilled with this whole situation. And while they agreed to it, they're keeping a close eye on it because they don't want to lose Paul Bonner. And while acknowledging, like they did this week, that it's very difficult to progress to a senior team level at a, con- at a country like Germany, throwing no shade at Austria, which is what the Gaif Bay basically said, you know, it's very difficult to make it to that level in Germany, whereas in Austria, it's a, it's a little bit easier. Um, all that said, Vonner has to really start to assess what's more important for him. And this is where I, as uh, a person who enjoys watching young players develop and progress and, and reach a higher level, I'm a little torn on this myself. So I can only imagine how Paul Vonner feels. He looks around and he sees other young players getting more first team playing time in other clubs. And, and granted, these are clubs that are not at the level at Bayer, as Bayern Munich is. Um, and I understand he's probably frustrated with that. And if I'm him, I'm looking at the depth chart at Bayern Munich and I'm not seeing a whole lot of playing time coming available. I'm just not, especially given that Bayern Munich just invested into Ryan Gravenberg. And and now they're finding out that they think he's more of an attacking midfielder, more of an eight or a 10 than he is a defensive midfielder. When you look at all the positions that Vonner could play, and I think that he's most known to be an attacking midfielder, it's very tough to figure out how he's going to crack the lineup at Bayern anytime soon. Could you make him a wing given his speed and creativity? Absolutely, but you don't need a wing. You're, you're, you have Thomas Muller and Jamal Musiala as your current stable of attacking midfielders. You certainly don't need anybody there. What about left back, which is where, for whatever reason, Julian Nagelsmann has toyed making him. Uh, uh, you have Alfonso Davies. Uh, no one clearly is going to usurp Davies' position at this point. It's definitely not Bonner. Could you use him as an eight, which has been like one of the longstanding rumors at Bayern Munich? Probably not because you, you have Leon Gretzka, you have Joshua Kimmich, you have Ryan Gravenberg, you have Marcel Sabitz, you have like you just don't need him there. So what do you do with a kid like this? You want to keep him around all of these great players and have him glean all of the knowledge that he can see their work out, see their workout regimens, see their work habits, uh, just to be able to follow them and try and emulate them and 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 really take in and absorb everything you can so that he can develop at a faster rate on the training ground rather than in games. But in the end, this is a kid that wants game time, needs game time. He needs to start doing this on the field against grown men during games and not just during training. And I understand that he's antsy, and I understand that he is going to probably start to ponder rash decisions, and that he's probably going to start pushing the club for a loan, or for a transfer, and that he's probably going to push the Day of Bay into making an early decision on him. Do they want to kind of put him on this expedited track forward, or are they going to let him walk to Austria? Are they going to call his bluff and think that he won't make that move? This is going to be a really fascinating thing to watch play out. I don't know what the right answer is. When I look at this kid, I see his ability and his potential. I don't know where he fits at Bayern Munich. If it was me, if I was sitting in that sporting director chair, and I know that most of you are ecstatic that I am not, I would probably look for a loan for Paul Vonner, even as early as this winter, because I do believe that he needs playing time. And I think he needs to, at some level, in some way, start to show this for a first team in league matches. 
And I don't care if that's in the Belgian league. I don't care if it's in the Swedish league. I don't care. Sorry, Marcus Ard, Iridell. It may be if we do get Vonner up in Sweden, you can relocate again and you can personally cover him. But I don't care where he goes. I want him to have that experience of playing on a first team and being able to start to have to take in and absorb some of those responsibilities that come along with being on a first team with being having to face those physical challenges against grown men, against faster players, having to play a, at a higher speed than you probably ever have anywhere aside of in your Bayern Munich training session. So I want to see what happens with Paul Vonner. I think he is getting impatient. I think he wants his opportunity. And I don't know if it's, you know, he's got agents or parents or whatever family advising him. But I think he's definitely pushing for something. He's pushing for more. And whether that happens at Bayern Munich, whether it happens at Germany, remains to be seen. But this kid has a lot of talent. He certainly would not have any trouble finding suitors to either house him on a loan or to take him in on a transfer. I I don't think there's any way that Bayern would sell Vonner at this point. But I do think that the player is, is getting antsy and that he's going to want to make that next leap. And I don't know if there's going to be roster room at Bayern Munich for him to do that. The fourth thing that we learned this week is that the end is near for Benjamin Pavar at Bayern Munich. And for the second time in the last two weeks, we have seen Benjamin Pavar reiterate that he is open to exploring something else. And in this specific instance, speaking to the Italian media, Pavar mentioned his good friendship with Olivier Giroud and it's kind of funny, right? Because you're talking about friendships and he's talking about wanting to play with Giroud. Um, And I get that part of it, but to me, this was also some master planning by Pavar because he is planting that seed once again, that he's not happy about his situation at Bayern, that he wants to play center back he doesn't appreciate that he was left out of the lineup a few times um, and that, you know, if to get what he wants, he's willing to move on. And the response from the Bayern Munich execs this week was exactly what we thought. They're a little dumbfounded. Pavar played most of the time he was available. Um, you know, the center back position is pretty much locked down, but they've even given him some time there when possible. Uh, they don't really understand why he's so bitter, but to me, it's pretty easy to see, right? They went out. Last summer, they got Nusara Mizrahi because obviously, you know, Pavard and let it be known even last summer, he wanted to play center back and he was potentially this was going to be an issue. So Bayern Munich covering its tracks, bring in, brings in Mizrahi. And of course, that was also because, you know, many people did not think Pavard was great last year. I, I don't necessarily follow along those lines. Um, I thought he was pretty good last year. I wouldn't say go as far as say great. I think he's been great this year, but. Uh, I, I do understand the frustration some people had with him last year. Byron went out, they got Mizrahi. They brought in Matisse Delict, who is pretty much established himself as the one of the foundational center backs for the future. Of course, Byron has three of those on the roster, so we'll see how that works out. There's nowhere for Pavar to go at this point. He could stay at right back and probably be a lockdown starter, which I think would be great for him. But if he really does want to move the center back that badly, it's going to be very tough to do that given the talent there with Luca Hernandez, Dio Upamecano, of course, two of Pavar's countrymen, and then Matisse Delict, who has has been really good since Byron picked him up. So I do think this is going to be uh, a very difficult situation for Benjamin Pavar uh, in terms of 
grinding the rest of the season out because I think with his recent statements, the club is probably going to start working with Julian Nagelsmann on a formal transition from Benjamin Pavar to Nassar Mizrahi as that starting right back. It'll be interesting to see how Nagelsmann handles it. The club has made an investment in Mizrahi. Obviously, if Pavar continues this push to move on, it's going to be very difficult for the club to keep him. So when is the best time to transition? Is it to just do it now, to just start Mizrahi and start getting him as many reps with the first team and as many as much playing time in games, I should say? Is the time now? Or is Pavard so integral to what Bayern Munich is doing? Is his performance so good that you let him ride out this season? And even though he's unhappy and even though you're pretty certain he's going to move on, um, do you ride him out because he's just been that good? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm very intrigued to see what Julian Nagelsmann decides to do. I do think there will be some pressure from the execs. And I know that they especially hate when anyone insinuates that they make any footballing decisions in terms of who plays and who doesn't. But I think in a lot of ways, it's going to make sense for the club to start looking at that transition and what it looks like. I think that Nagelsmann really appreciates Pavar's versatility. The fact that he can use him as a right back or a center back and switch him on a moment's notice and get a great performance. But I do think that Pavar is irritating the club with his statements. I do think that they know there's a succession plan there and that they just need to push the button on fully activating it. But whatever they decide, it'll have a big impact on the second half of the season because Pavar has done this on the biggest of stages uh, he has been a very good player this season. I think for his career, not just at Bayern Munich, he's been very solid. And I know he was up and down for a little bit during his tenure at Bayern Munich. And as I've stated a zillion times, I think it has to do with his ability to recover from injuries and then coming back too early from injuries. When he has been steadily healthy, he has been very, very good. And I I don't even think that's something you can argue about. When he comes off an injury, he, he's typically not that great. But when he's healthy, and he's established and he he gets past whatever is ailing him. He's pretty darn good. So um, this will be a situation we'll be monitoring, of course. But it does look like by all indications that Benjamin Pavar is about to move on. And that will likely happen in the summer of 2023. I don't think we'll see any winter movement just because of how valuable he is as a versatile asset for Julian Nagelsmann. But he's already getting looks from FC Barcelona, Real Madrid, AC Milan, and Chelsea, of course. And you could even go back further. There were some rumors linking him to Manchester United. So wherever, whatever he decides, he is going to have options. The fifth and final thing I wanted to do this week is I wanted to say that we learned that Bayern Munich had a very, very good first half of the season. And I don't want to spend too much time recapping everything, but I do want to hit on some things that I think are very important to, to really ponder as we have this World Cup break. Uh, you know, it wasn't always easy for Bayern Munich in the first half of the season. There was a lot of growing that had to happen in terms of the team getting used to each other, learning how to play together, learning how to adapt to what the coach wanted, uh, bouncing back and forth between formations. Of course, there was the 4 triple two, which was all the rage for a little bit now. The team seems to have settled into more of a 4-2-3-1. There was a lot of movement, a lot of moving and shaking. There were a lot of players moving around, uh, given different responsibilities. And it wasn't always pretty. And it wasn't always easy. And they made some games way harder than they needed to be. They didn't always get the best results. But I think when you look back at it, 
you can see a couple of things. The team progressively got better over the course of the first half of the season, which is the first thing that you really want. You want to see constant improvement. I think they did that. I think we saw individual players start to raise their own level of play and escalate what they could do on the pitch. And I'm specifically talking about Jamal Musiala. When the team needed someone to break out and step up, he was there. When Thomas Muller went down, it was Musiala who was able to come in, really keep the offense going, keep the flow of the attack going. We saw Leroy Sané step up. Uh, Sané has been mercurial at best during his Bayern Munich tenure, but I think he has started to really put forth some of his best performances uh, over the course of the first half of this season. We started to see Serge Gnabry grow into a consistent role under Julian Nagelsmann. And it sounds weird because Gnabry was one of the players who had played for Nagelsmann before. And of course, that was back at Hoffenheim. But Nagelsmann had trouble finding ways to get the most out of Gnabry last season. Remember, Gnabry was unhappy. He was playing for a wing back as a little bit. He couldn't really settle into any type of formal starting role consistently. He was moving from the left side to the right side, from wing to wing back. It was very, very tough for Serge Gnabry to, to establish himself last season. But I think we're starting to see the best of Gnabry and what he can be under Nagelsmann this season. Uh, we're seeing a very much improved duo of Yashua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka, who are pretty good every season, let's be honest. But I think they had a little bit more of a roller coaster ride last season. We're seeing a better version of them. We're seeing a deeper version of the midfield in general as Marcel Sabitzer is 10 times better than he was last season. And as your fourth midfield option, Ryan Gravenberg isn't so bad. Defensively, much, much better. Uh, we are seeing Matisse Delict, Dio Upamecano, Luca Hernandez, and even Benjamin Pavar when he's been called upon, really anchor down that center back position and be really, really good. Have they been perfect? No. Delict has made game-changing mistakes. Upamecano has made game-changing mistakes. Luca Hernandez has had some down games. Uh, it's happened, but they overall, they've been really good. Um, Benjamin Pavar, I think, has just been excellent as a right back. I think he's been one of the right, best right backs in Europe all season. And I don't know that many people expect that. Um, when I look over at the other side, I see a very good first half from Alfonso Davies. I don't think it's been quite as good as what he's shown in the past. I don't think he's quite maybe living up to that lofty potential that we all placed upon him, but maybe this is more of who he is. He's a player who is more attacking minded than maybe you would like your left back to be. I mean, I know it's the modern game and, and every coach loves their outside backs getting up the field and into the play, but sometimes Davies given his propensity to lose the ball, he can leave his side of the field open for quick counterattacks pretty easily. So uh, while Davies, I think has been good overall on the back line, I think he's the one that has the most room to improve his performance in the second half of the season. Manuel Neuer in that I think has been great. Uh, obviously he's getting older and maybe a smidge slower than he once was, but you wouldn't know it by looking at his reflexes sometimes because he still makes some unbelievable saves. He is invaluable as a communicator in the back. And I think that this has been a, a pretty impressive run for him. Um, aside of the shoulder injury, I think he just had a really, really solid first half of the season. Even when he went out, Sven Ulrich, I thought, deputized pretty well. Again, wasn't perfect, but I think he fulfilled that role as a backup keeper like you would want to. Um, of course, you're never going to have the same level of comfort or the same communication skills that Neuer brings to the table. 
but I do think Ulrich did a good enough job to warrant that contract extension that he just got. So I'm very enthused about what I saw in the first half of the season. I loved that there was constant improvement and progression and, you know, I'll be interested to see how the team handles this world cup, how they come back from it. Are we going to see heavy legs in the second half of the season? Is it going to take some, take them some time to get back and used to playing with each other? Will there be growing pains under Julian Nagelsmann as he once again looks to sort out what formation works best, what player combinations work best together? I don't know. Uh, that will be all for us to to really wrap about in a few weeks, uh, which is crazy to say. Like, I can't believe it's mid-November right now. It, it's to me, like I, I'm just I'm dumbfounded we're at this stage of the year and that we have the World Cup at this time of the year and that we'll be heading into a winter break after that. It's it's a lot for the brain to take in when your body's been conditioned for something your entire life to uh, to expect. And this is definitely a change to all of our footballing mentality and how we view a season. So um, as far as the non-footballing aspect of things, just very quickly, um, I'm still slacking on streaming for a variety of, variety of reasons. We've had a lot of personal stuff going on uh, in terms of had some uh, deaths in the family, multiple, which is crazy to have in a short stint. I've been really busy with kids stuff and haven't devoted as much time to streaming or watching anything. And, and like I said before, having the Phillies in the World Series run, really, uh, that ruined a couple of weeks of watching any type of show because I was so stuck on them. So I will get into it. I have, believe me, I'm backlogged with shows I need to watch. But I'll quickly touch on this. This was the first episode this past one of The Walking Dead that I felt was halfway good. Uh, this entire last probably two and a half seasons has been terrible, particularly last season and a half. Um, this one finally had some intrigue. This one finally had some drama that was not manufactured. Um, all of the walking dead tropes that we've seen a million times, they've started to spin those a little bit and make it a little more interesting. It's just a shame that it's way too late. I read somewhere that they went from something like 20 million viewers an episode down to two which is still great, a great number, don't get me wrong. But when you're clocking along at something crazy like that and then you're you're dropping down that far, it shows you that the quality of the show is gone. The quality of the writing has dropped significantly and the storyline has really suffered. Uh, and it's a shame because I think that's a good, hardworking group of actors who put on great performances, but the storylines have just been terrible. That said, I'm looking forward to this series finale. Looking forward to see how they wrap it all up. I don't know how I feel about all of these spinoff series. And to be honest, I haven't researched enough to know whether these are mini series or if they're going to be movies or long-term things. But I saw that there was one with Rick and Michonne. I thought there was one, I think there was one with Daryl Dixon, which I think most fans would be, most fans of the show would be more into that because Daryl has been such a, a good character throughout and the most easily the most interesting character. I don't even think it's close. Uh, and he's the one that hasn't had these awful bouts of changing the character to fit a storyline. He has maintained his consistency in being the same type of character the entire time, which on this show is completely crazy because every character goes through these serious changes and swings where they're making irrational, emotional decisions that they normally wouldn't. And to be honest, like that is, I'm sure, part of the reason why many people have dropped off. You go through these crazy swings with these characters. And these are characters that people have invested into. And when you see them change that much or sway from what made them great characters, 
it's very off-putting. And I can guarantee you, aside of the storylines themselves, it's the way some of the characters have been used uh, over the course of the show has really taken away from what made it great to begin with. So I'm looking forward to the series finale. I'm more looking forward to this being over and this debt being taken off of me because I do feel like I need to finish it for whatever reason, stupid reason in my head. I feel that way. I, I do feel like I need to to finish it off and I'll be happy when it's over because I will no longer have that obligation. That's about it for this show. Uh, as always, you can check me out at the barrel blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB works. You can get our tweet Meister, Tommy Adams at Tommy Adams 71. And you can get, I need no name at BFW. And then of course, get all of our wonderful writers and podcasters on the site. Bavarian podcast or Bavarian football works.com. And we will be covering, of course, the entire world cup. We'll have so much coverage. You'll be overwhelmed. <laughs> and we'll also still be following Byron and giving you all the latest and greatest news on the club as well, because well, that's what we do. So again, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Have a couple of beers on me and enjoy this World Cup. Try and focus on the games. I know there's a lot of bad stuff otherwise surrounding this event. But in the end, you want to watch the games and be entertained by them. So please do that. Enjoy it and let us know how you feel about it. We obviously love interacting with you guys. And uh, we look forward to discussing the World Cup uh, at length with you. So thanks for listening. We will see you next time.